are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 110 is blues legend Joe Lewis Walker. He's released something like 25 albums since 1986, though as you will soon hear, he was active for over 20 years before that. You're right now listening to Don't Play Games from Cold is the Night, 1986. We're going to be discussing the title track from Hellfire from 2012... Then a gospel tune, Keep the Faith, from Hornet's Nest, 2013. And looking back to the title track from The Gift, from 1988. We'll conclude by listening to a new live version of Soldier for Jesus, from Viva Las Vegas Live. For more information, please see joelewiswalker.com. For more about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will play a little bit of Don't Play Games, the final song from your first album, Cold is the Night, 1986. You're in your mid-30s by then. You've been playing professionally since you were 16. Do you want to say a little about just that jump to actually going from just playing with all these wonderful people to making your own album, starting the journey that we're going to be talking about today? I started playing out with my cousins and out of town and different dances and for motorcycle clubs when I was about 12. And then 14, we all joined the Musicians' Union in San Francisco. And then at 16, I left home to become a freshman musician. It was sort of a, so what I'd been doing, by the time I got 16, I'd been playing quite a bit all over, backing up a lot of people. People like Fred McDowell and Earl Hooker and John Lee Hooker, different people like that. You know, I was pretty good when I was a kid. And my mom and dad would trust me to go out to nightclubs and whatnot. And my older sister, sometimes she'd go with me. So, I mean, it was one of those things where it was, Sort of in my DNA, you know, all my four cousins were musicians and I played with all of them and one turned a professional and left. And when he left, I took his place in a band that we had of me and my cousins. It was sort of a a good training ground for me. So then many years later, was it just a record company offer that actually made Cold Is The Night happen at that point as opposed to much earlier? When I was about 18 or 19, I was, you know, living with Bloomfield, and he got me a bunch of auditions, uh, one with Buddha Records, so when I was living up in Malibu, so but nothing came of it, and I was playing with different musicians around the Bay Area, like I said, backing people up, and from uh, 75 to 85, I played nothing but gospel music, and we traveled all over doing programs and doing stuff like gospel in New Orleans Jazz and Harriers Festival, and I think about 85, I got a call from the Mississippi Delta Blues Band to do a two-month tour of Europe with them. So I did the tour with them on the express agreement that I could take some of the money that I had earned from that tour and use it to make a demo tape to send to different record labels. Well, when I got back, a friend of mine sent a tape to Alligator Records. Alligator Records were very interested in me, but for one reason or another, it didn't happen. But they sent it to another label called High Tone Label. And High Tone was doing a friend of mine named Frankie Lee, and, and they were also doing reissues of Albert King of Lightning Hopkins, I think, and Eddie Taylor. And they had a new young guy on their label they were trying to promote named Robert Craig. And when I came there, they said, hey, you know, um, we need another guy, you know, and, and you play slide guitar and you do this. So they heard the demo and, and then they said, you know, we, we want to come hear you live. They came and heard me live and they, they signed me up in, I think, 84. I made the record in 85. They released it in 86. And uh, we were able to make a little bit of inroads with that record and constant touring, constant touring. And that was the catalyst for that whole situation. And then two dozen albums later or so, we're going to talk about the first one we're going to play in full is the title track from Hellfire 2012. 
Do you want to say a little bit about where you had gotten by then and about that song in particular? I mean, you've already said, even though you're kind of marketed and best known as a blues player, and we heard some of that in those riffs and Don't Play Games, just from all that gospel experience and the fact that maybe it's been thought that because you played with so many people or played around so much, anyway, that a lot more seeped into your writing style. And so Hellfire, what, this is more kind of boogie-woogie rock and roll, something like that, you know, with a the guitar licks are not your normal, even for you, uh, your normal blues licks. You know, it's much more affected. You've got some wah-wah in there. Say a little about this track. The thing about Hellfire was it was a song that I wrote. The real star of that record is a guy named Tom Hainbridge because Tom was producing a lot of people, B.B. King, Leonard Skinner, Buddy Guy, who he works with exclusively. And he really wanted to do a record on me, and we finally came to an agreement. And so me and him, we wrote about 13 songs in two days. We had bits and pieces of songs, and that was one song that I'd really been working on, and he really helped me flesh it out. It's the quintessential dichotomy, you know, a devil on your left shoulder, an angel on your right shoulder, and there's a battle for your soul. That's the gist of the song, but, you know, all I did with the guitar was I just went back to my psychedelic roots in San Francisco because I went to junior high school a block from the Film Auditorium. So we used to have our battle of bands at Fillmore before Bill Graham and the Hippies came there, and I got to see all these shows when Bill Graham and the Hippies were there. And like I said, you know, I lived with Bloomfield, and, and through Bloomfield I got to know Buddy Miles, and through Buddy Miles I got to know Jimi Hendrix, and so you had all the psychedelic thing going on in my neck of the woods at the time, San Francisco, Oakland, Mill Valley, all that Bay Area. You had the blues guys, which they had resuscitation of a lot of blues guys' careers, and a lot of them moving out to the Bay Area. And you had a lot of younger blues guys moving out to the Bay Area, which was Bloomfield, Charlie Musselwhite, and, and people like Elvin Bishop. And then you had some of the other older blues guys. Earl Hooker coming out every all the time. Fred McDowell coming out making his famous record, I Do Not Play Rock and Roll, was Fred's record. And you had all that convergence. And in Richmond, California, you have the huge parishes where all the people from Louisiana live. So, you know, Clifton Chenier and all the Zydeco people would come once or twice a year and literally play for a month. That's how many little parishes and churches and dance halls. And you had a lot of jazz. So you had all that convergence, and that was my training ground, all that stuff. I'm known for blues, and blues is my mother tongue, and blues has been very good to me. So by no means would I, would I try to you know, not show my appreciation and love for the blues, but every older blues guy I ever worked with or recorded with, from B.B. King to Matt Murphy to Ike Turner to you name it, they always said, you know, do this stuff your way, man. Don't do it our way. Don't try to be a snapshot of 1943. Be who you are in 1983 or 1993. And that's what me and, and I think Robert Cray and, and a lot of guys like us did. We, you know, we tried to move the blues forward in a way without losing the essence. Where at the same time, my good friend Steve Ray Vaughan was coming out. He was put rocking that blues, but trying to keep the essence of the blues, which he would do. And we love Stevie for that. And so there was, you know, it was a big tent. There could be soul blues like Robert Cray, rock blues like Stevie Ray Vaughan, a little bit more gospel blues or whatever, psychedelic blues by someone like me, roadhouse blues by people like the Fabulous Thunderbirds, jump blues by people like Room Full of Blues, country blues by people like Taj Mahal or whoever. There was a big, big tent, and it was all blues. And all those old guys were alive then. And that was a really, really good time. And if you really want to see a picture of it, they have a video of the Newport Festival, I think it was 65, when Bob Dylan turned electric. And people don't know, a lot of people don't know that the band that played with Bob Dylan was not the band. 
the band backing him up, and you can see it in the video, is Mike Bloomfield, Elvin Bishop, Sam Lay, and Jerome Arnold, and Barry Goldberg from the Butterfield Blues Band. So in essence, the blues guys like that were part of Dylan becoming a folk rock icon. But a lot of that sort of gets lost in, in musical history. But anyway, I hope that answered your question. Let's play Hellfire.
Well, you know, Hellfire, like I said, it was a song that I've been working on forever. And, and Tom Hainbridge, we put our heads together and we're able to, and he says, you know, Joe, just, you know, play like you played when you were playing psychedelic shit. Because I played with a lot of psychedelic groups in the Bay Area. I played with the Blue Cheer, but the Whiskey A Go Go. I, I was in a band that spawned Blue Cheer called the Oxford Circle. And we used to, you know, of course, back then we used to do psychedelic stuff. This was 65, 66, 67, 68. It was really more bluesy than psychedelic, but we were we were all involved in that whole scene. So I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I can stretch out like that. You know, I know how to do that. I was around when, when guys were playing like that live. I got to see them play live. I know what that sort of sound is, but there's no boundaries when you play like that. You just play you know, sort of like a jazz player. You just let loose and there's no net. And just because a song's in the key of B doesn't mean you have to solo in the key of B during the whole song. You can do moving chords or a lot of different movement to where you're stretching out. That's all I did on that song. And a lot of people sort of like it. <laughs> well, that basic riff, it's a fruitful way to, because it's basically one chord, but because it moves, it's a riff song do, 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 yeah, it's a riff song. Do, 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 do. So that sounds like it's moving between at least two chords there, but it's no, it's really on one of them. So that just gives you a totally wide open canvas to leave the key and fly up, you know, the way that you actually did. And just the fact structurally that it's two verses and two choruses is the guitar solo in the middle. And in your live version, I was, I'll link folks to online that it adds another like three minutes that you stretch the solo out at the end, got it even more crazy and kind of saved some of that psychedelic stuff. It seemed in the live version more to the end, whereas your middle solo, it looked like it was a little more traditionally blues, like a little less pedal dominated when you were doing this live. This is one song I never really did dig into it live, just to be honest about it, because I think if you're going to play that way, you have to play that way all the time. You don't have to go all out full bore all the time, but that element of playing that way, that's not the way I play all the time. Because to play that way all the time, there are tools of the trade. You're using the wah-wah, you're using the, you're the fuzz-wah, you're using the chorus pedal, you're using, there's a lot of things, you, you can use the backwards pedal, there's so much stuff you can do, but all the trios that I saw, uh, Hendrix and I saw Cream, The Who, whatever, they played that style 24-7. Jimmy didn't do a lot of soft ballads. He didn't do a lot of Little Wing on shows. He didn't do a lot of The Wind Cries Mary. He did a lot of Purple Haze, a lot of Foxy Lady, you know, just burning it up. And you could see him doing it live New Year's Eve at the film Easter Band of Gypsies. There's a video of him doing that album. They go from machine gun to uh, who knows to different things. And the gist of it is there's a great voice with Buddy Miles. There's great ideas. And then Jimmy stretches out. You know, with machine gun, he makes the guitar sound like machine gun. Uh, with who knows, it's more of a good morning little schoolgirl. Do, 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 little school. It's basically a good morning little schoolgirl. But when Jimmy does what he does with all the, the ding dong ding and, the, and sort of Chinese guitar, play, all these weird things that he does, you can't do all that in The Wind Cries Mirror. <laughs> you can't do all that in a nice ballad like he'd write. So just to say that that's a style that I like to visit, like I like to visit other styles, but to be quite honest, that's one that it's a little self-indulgent. And I think that's being sort of kind. And in today's world, it's a different world. You can't go back and capture that. Just like people try to go back and capture the Grateful Dead, what they did. You can't go back and capture that. It was a different world. 
You know, you can't go back and capture what the Yardbirds did. And people's attention spans are different now. The trends of music are different now. I know a lot of people say, oh, I wish I was back there to see Grace Slick sing White Rabbit. You know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you were there, you might not remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Having a stretch solo on this song in particular makes more sense because it's just such a concise song otherwise i mean just instrumentally from that like i'm surprised that this basic verse this like that could have been the intro but instead you had something that uses the same rhythm but it's this particular guitar like this Picking a place where that particular riff, which is so catchy, is going to come back. Seems like that could have been the thing that was playing throughout the whole verse. But no, you push it over to the very tight rhythm track. I guess it's just there's a lot of Wurlitzer decoration, but otherwise the rhythm section is just super tight. I mean, is that just Tom's production? Did it have that exact feel when you were writing it? Or did you not really know exactly how it was going to click together? I wanted to make sure that at the end of the song, we, we had a little sort of like gospel call and response type of thing where you're working it at the end. But the riff, you know, I just listen to stuff. And, oh, that's but I've been listening to a song called Me and Baby Brother by War. And it goes, me and baby, dun, 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 me and baby brother. And I was thinking, wow, I sort of like that riff, but I got something different. So I was thinking, hell, if I do walking down the heavens, but I was trying to put the sort of scratch thing in the middle. So it's really not da 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 da. It's really da 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 And so that's why I was looking on the guitar, and it worked that way. And when it worked that way, it just makes it different from a sort of really ham-fisted, heavy-handed riff, down, 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 to a more a lighter area thing. Da 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 da. You could do a little bit more with the beats in between the beats, if that makes sense. Yeah, I noticed in the live version that you did at the end, the, you had the echoing background vocals, which were not in this recording, I don't think. The devil sitting on my shoulder at the end. The echo did not actually make it in there. It's not an easy song to do live because you really have to get into that space. And then there's the thing of, you know, I'll just be honest, every time I've seen Jimi Hendrix or somebody like that, the audience's ears were bleeding. Because <laughs> it was up. You know, I mean, everybody was L-O-U-D loud <laughs> and with that loudness you can do a lot of things sonically but if you just go playing out like loud like that now in a club you'd get thrown out i mean one of my friends he saw um, the debut of peter green's fleetwood mac at the um i think the cafe wa or somewhere in new york city or bottom line small club literally small clubs you know they're small downstairs and they literally peter had uh, two stacks of marshall's Danny Kerwin has two stacks. <laughs> there were six people there. And, you know, guys would do that. And, you know, it was just like, man, you, woo, was it really that loud? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, that's funny because I think of their classic albums from that period as very kind of Baroque. You know, I'm not going to listen to Albatross at giant volume. It's not like Zeppelin. They seem like kind of a sedate band. So I actually think that, no, it's actually intended to make your ears bleed. <laughs> Play at that volume. The mores of the day where everybody was bigger was better. Two or three marshals on stage was the order of the day. I remember Bloomfield told me that he played the Newport Folk Festival. He thought that the people were clapping and were really were screaming because they liked 
the electric stuff behind Bob Dylan. He was playing so loud that he didn't know that all those thousands of people were booing. <laughs> they had to tell him later on. He didn't know. He was just wailing away. And if you see the video, I mean, they're, they're doing Maggie's Farm and Michael's just up to 10, all treble on a 58 Les Paul. I think it was two or four twin reverbs turned all on 10, all on treble, which is like tying the boxcar cats together and setting the tail on fire. It's a horrible thought. I shouldn't say that, but it's that screechy. Evidently, something worked. Before we get to the next song, we're going to talk a little about the sponsors for this episode, the first of which is Mac Weldon, whose mission is to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed and shopping for them is easy and convenient. The department store aisle will display to you a mind-numbing assortment of underwear and socks, and finding consistent fit and quality in this is very dicey. So Mac Weldon decided to take matters into their own hands. They started from scratch to engineer their own fabric, to make sure the design process was meticulous so you can count on the fit being the same every single time, they have obsessed over every stitch and seam to reach perfection. They've got all the main styles of underwear and t-shirt. I picked up a V-neck that is great for layering, and man, do I love the feel of that fabric. I'm just about to order an Oxford shirt with sweat-preventing technology and underarm sweat guards, which is great for me because I like to dress up for gigs and always sweat through these dress shirts. This will be some of the most comfortable clothing you will ever wear. And I have done a return with them. The return policies are generous and simple. For instance, if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it. And they'll still refund you with no questions asked. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code EXAMINED. This episode is also sponsored by Dollar Shave Club. I've got a pack of their stuff right here. I've tried out the Executive Razor, their Shave Butter, which is sort of lighter, easier to use than shaving cream, Prep Scrub, a post-shave do for my tender face. I've been really impressed with the quality and how well they work. And as amazing as the shave stuff is, Dollar Shave Club is way more than just razors. Dollar Shave Club has you covered head to toe with everything you need to shower, shave, style your hair, brush your teeth, even wipe your butt. I don't like to go out and pick up basic stuff like this. Dollar Shave Club keeps you automatically stocked up on the products you actually use. You get what you want whenever you need it, whether that's once a month or a few times a year. And as a Dollar Shave Club member, you know what you're getting is the highest quality. You don't have to waste time at stores wondering if what you're going to get is any good. And right now, you can put the quality of Dollar Shave Club's products to the test. Their Ultimate Shave Starter Set, that is the pack I was telling you about a minute ago, has basically everything you need for an amazing shave. The Executive Razor, Shave Butter, Prep Scrub, and Post Shave Dew. The best part is you can try it for just $5. After that, the restock box ships regularly sized products at regular prices. Get your ultimate starter set for just $5 at dollarshaveclub.com slash N-E-M. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash N-E-M. Finally, I want to tell you once again about Masterclass, which is sort of like this podcast delving into the minds of wonderful artists of various sorts, but at much greater length with much higher production values, much more money thrown into this thing. The selection of over 60 classes includes many wonderful music classes. I've told you about Herbie Hancock and Carlos Santana and Danny Elfman. This week, I looked into Hans Zimmer teaches film scoring 31 lessons covering not just the musical stuff, but how to work with directors, how to match your score to dialogue. There are examples like his theme for Batman in the Dark Knight trilogy, his theme for Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean. 
and many, many more, all accompanied by a helpful workbook. There are comments from your fellow course viewers on each lecture that are often super helpful in themselves. He's a great speaker, super interesting. And of course, if you get tired of his voice, you can switch over to Neil deGrasse Tyson or David Sedaris or David Lynch or Jodie Foster, Werner Herzog. The list goes on and on and on. And you can get unlimited access to every masterclass. As a Nakedly Examined podcast listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. All right, let's get back to Joe. Let's move toward a little more sedate, but still from basically the same period. The album was Hornet's Nest 2013. The song is Keep the Faith. A lot more gospel showing out here. Do you want to say a little more about where you're at with this song before we play it in full? I was fortunate. I'm a student of this game, and, and when I got just a little bit of notoriety, first thing I'd do, I'd hire some of the people that influenced me. And so um, about 20, 20 some odd years ago, I made a record called Great Guitars with about 13 of my favorite guitar players. And some of them were really hard to get, and Scotty Moore was one hard to get. But once me and Scotty became friends, he started doing stuff and telling me to come do stuff with me and DJ Fontana, who was the drummer for Elvis also. I did a show with Scotty where they had the whole complete Elvis family, basically. Musicians and background singers there. You know, the way I warm up to sing, to do a show, I'll go back in the room, take my guitar and sing a couple old gospel songs, you know, that I learned in church or whatnot. So I've been singing this song in the dressing room. I'm a soldier for Jesus. I was working on this song and so this... The older gentleman comes in, he's in suit and everything. He says, hey, you the guy Scotty was telling about. I says, yeah. I said, my name's Joe Lewis Walker. He says, well, that's great. My name's Ray Walker. I says, wow, maybe we're some kin. He says, I don't think so. <laughs> but Ray was the bass singer and the manager for the Jordanaires. So he called the other guys and he says, listen to this. And I started playing for him. He says, and he just turned to me and says, we got to do that song with you. So you fast forward to Hellfire. We did Soldier for Jesus. And then while we were doing that session, I said, Ray, listen to this. And I played Keep the Faith, and he says, we got to do that song with you. So the next record, the Jordanaires uh, sang Keep the Faith with me, which if I could say, hey, man, pick me the four or five people that are the most influential to you that you never thought you'd be in a room writing with or doing a podcast with, and you end up in a room with them. Well, that's what happened with me and the Jordanaires. you got to pinch yourself because when you listen to those songs, it's a real juxtaposition of two different Gospels. And I'm thinking, you know, I wanted to make a record, a Gospel record of so-called Black Gospel and so-called White Gospel mixed together. So I called Ray and said, you know, Ray, I, I talked to my friend uh, Clarence Fountain with the Blind Boys of Alabama, and I'd like to do an album with you guys. And then, I kid you not, he turned to me and he says, Joe, me and the Blind Boys have been talking about doing an album forever. And since we were singing with Rosetta Tharp, when Ray told me that the Jordanaires were discovered by Sister Rosetta Thorpe, I just about fainted. Because if you know anything about the music history, you know how segregated it was back then. And churches, like Martin Luther King say, you want to find the most segregated place, go to church on Sunday. <laughs> but anyway, Sister Rosetta Thorpe discovered the Jordanaires. And she had them playing at programs in black churches in the 50s when time was totally rough. And Ray told me the story. We'd go to the church, Joe, and of course, the, the pastor, you know, African-American pastor, said, oh, you guys must have the wrong church. You might want, you know, the big, beautiful church down the road. <laughs> he said, no, no, no. No, we're here for Sister Rosetta Tharp. Well, these guys said, well, we know Rosetta Tharp, but we don't know you guys. And Sister Rosetta Tharp would come and say, you know what? If my guys don't sing, 
I don't think. And at the time, she was the biggest gospel star basically in the world, bigger than Mahalia Jackson. So it just goes to show the thread that runs through it. And so something like Keep the Faith is sort of an outlier of something like that. You know, um, actually I wrote that song for my stepson, Keep the Faith, but for me, that's what music is about, is really the connections. It's like people say, what's your favorite song? They always think it's going to be a blues song, and I, I tell them it's A Coat of Many Colors by Dolly Parton. And once they start picking their mouth up, they say, why? And I say, because that coat of many colors is just like this country. It's just like the music. If you take one strand out of that coat of many colors, it falls apart. And if the coat's all one color, so what? (laughs) But when you juxtapose all those colors together, you get a mosaic that is interesting. And you get the same with music. You get the same with everything. And that's what the Jordanaires saw back in the 50s. That's what Scotty Moore saw back in the 50s when he was doing what he was doing before Elvis. And that's what Ike Turner was doing. That's what B.B. King, so I mean, to me, I would describe snapshot, a picture of what this musical experiment that was rock and roll, soul, gospel, blues, all that stuff put together, what it did, what it could do, and the outcome of that it could have, you know, like Muddy said, a baby. Blues had a baby called rock and roll. Well, the outcome of all that is people like me. You know, the minute you think you're going to hear a straight blues, for me, is the minute you're going to hear something like Hellfire. The minute you think you're going to hear something like Hellfire is the minute you're going to hear something like Keep the Faith. The minute you hear something like Keep the Faith, you're going to hear something like a Hank Snow song, I'm moving on. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just the product of all these things. And I consider those things a plus. Just keep the faith and realize we've come a long, long way. Yeah, yeah. Remember, love is the strength. Everybody's gonna lose their way 
sometimes. No, 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 no. But the light that leads the way back home always shines. Yes, it does. The place you dream about. Where you gonna end up? So I noticed this is also Tom Hainbridge, basically the same band, Reese Winans on keys, Tommy McDonald on bass. Was there a second guitarist? I know Rob McNelly is the second guitarist on Hellfire. It sounded like maybe there's only one guitar on this one, on Keep the Faith. Well, Rob was on tour with Bob Seger, so he couldn't do it. So I did most of the, all the guitar parts. Obviously, there's a very strong piano in here. It almost sounds more like a piano song than a guitar song, just in terms of what's driving it forward. But then the Wurlitzer is so, the organ is so prominent. Was that Reese was playing both those, so the Wurlitzer was an overdub? I'm trying to get at, like, with both these, like, were you recording them with the rhythm section together and then adding the keyboards and vocals later? Or was it really more layered? We did most of it in the studio, but what Reese did was that when we heard it, we said, oh man, let's put a little, another little keyboard on there so that you got that dunk, 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 you know, so that you had to adjust the position. And I played with, I've known Reese, Jesus Christ, 30, 30 something odd years. He can play anything. And so Reese came up with, with a, yeah, well, let me, let me put this here. And it worked, you know. And with Hambridge, you basically have a songwriter, people after my own heart, singing drummer. I love singing drummers because they know to keep the groove going and, and where to put the onus on the punchline of a song with their drum beats and what have you. You have that as well as a great songwriter. Well, Tom's the whole package. And a great singer. Me and him sing all those weird songs you hear on there like, You're Not in Kansas Anymore. That's me and Tom singing all those way high parts. Because I got a high voice and Tom's voice is higher than me. So we can sing all kind. We can sing all parts together. It's a good thing. I always had fun recording with Tom and we're going to be doing something here in the future one of these days. It's Again, very carefully produced. I noticed like when you finally get to the organ solo. Mm-hmm. 
suddenly there's acoustic guitar on the right side. Like that wasn't even part of the tapestry when you started, right? No, I put the acoustic on because I, I like to drive songs acoustically sometimes, you know, especially when it's an electric song. Sometimes people don't think acoustic should be on there, but an acoustic works a lot of times. Yeah, it obviously requires some very careful mixing. There's so much stuff. Just the way the piano is so prominent in some parts, but then disappears for a lot of it. I mean, that you've got this nice moving kind of jazz guitar part, even during places where, you know, otherwise the band is just like, like, let me just play this one part. The high point of the song here. The place you dream about. Yeah, that everything else is just bam, bam. But it's still like the guitar you're doing is light enough that it can still keep like doing little floaty things and it doesn't disrupt the overall power of those hits. Yeah, well, you know your stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to get at kind of where, especially with you being the lead player, when I've uh, done bands with lead guitarists who have a lot of blues chops, I'm singing, I'm playing rhythm, and then they can kind of fill in wherever they want. And maybe it's off, sometimes it's too much. But the fact that you're singing and then you kind of have to either put the lead licks in between the words, or I assume by this point, you're so used to playing and singing at the same time that you can kind of do lead lines while you're still... I'm singing the third verse now. I'm singing it exactly like I sang the other verses, but now there's like a lot more lead guitar going on while things are coming out of your mouth. Like we were talking about different eras in music in a way for blues. And like I was talking about the era when they had the great blues revival where they brought all the old guys back, Mississippi John Hurt, and then you had the new bloods coming like Bloomfield and, and Butterfield and over in Europe, different guys coming over, you know, regurgitating the blues. And you're right, you know, there'd be a rhythm guitar feeling, but I come from playing rhythm guitar out of a gospel background. And my whole thing is like the rhythm, you have to have a good rhythm track. Steve Cropper produced three records on me. And we always used to say we'd be in, in the studio playing, we'd be looking in the booth, and Cropper wouldn't be moving. And if it was something with really smoking, he'd be moving. I mean, literally moving side to side. And then we just dawned on it. If Cropper ain't moving when we're playing, we ain't got a good rhythm track. <laughs> you know, and my other answer to that is that somebody told me a long time ago, Joe, nobody goes home humming a guitar solo. They go home humming a melody. They go home humming that. They don't go home humming very many guitar. There's not very many rock guitar players that people go home humming their melodies. Buddy Holly was one. You know, Words of Love. George Harrison's another one. Jimi Hendrix from Melodic Things is another one. You could hum some of the the melodies. But hum me a Led Zeppelin solo. Well, and it's funny, in, in Hellfire, like you actually do have a catchy guitar riff besides that intro one we talked about, but it's that the one during the chorus, which is not even, well, I know live it wasn't even you playing that. It's my that kind of sets the song, that thing that is going up. That's Rob McNally. Yeah, but, you know, I play it live on stage, Matt, but my point is this, though, that most of the times if you see someone that's successful, be it the Beatles or Stevie Wonder or whomever, really the onus is on the song, and the solo is sort of secondary. You can take a sort of funky song and put a, just a nowhere solo, literally a one-note solo, all the way through the song, and the song could be a humongous hit, a la Wild Thing. Nobody knew how to solo, so they gave the guy a flute. He played a one-note solo, the whole song, 
If you listen to Wild Thing, da, 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 it's like Morse code. You know, there is no, there's nothing, but it worked. But nobody is going to hear that solo. They're going to hear the song. Now they could have put some wanking off solo in the middle of it. It would have detracted from just the whole sort of drunken wild thing. Hey baby, you're a wild thing. You know, that whole sort of devil entendre thing. I'm from the school that, you know, I can play lead guitar, but I play to express. I don't play to impress. Well, we should talk about the comparable thing with your voice, that in this song, since you've got the Jordanaires taking over the last chorus, singing it by themselves, because you you do the uh, remember by yourself, and then it's... Is there a technical name for when the lead vocalist lets the uh, background harmonies take it? And I want to say vamps, but it's not vamps. You know, does it basically an improv solo? Oh, no, it didn't. You know, and you're adding all these extra... In church, you know, you say, you know, you get to the work part, you know, get to the work part. You know, I mean, we all like the story and we all like the bridge and we all like, but get to the end part, you know, where the guy's sort of letting loose. You know what I mean? Those are the parts of the records we all love. <laughs> That's where somebody could make a fool of themselves and come on to some great things. And so in my own little world, I just call it response and call instead of call and response. And that's my own little thing. I was in the studio yesterday we flipping a, a song around that would be response and call. And I sort of like to do things. You try to experiment, and you, you listen to people who do experiment, and thank God for the people who, who were just fearless with experimenting. John Lennon, Marvin Gaye, you know, just fearless with experimenting. Muddy Waters, with knowing... That, that people are going to say, oh, wait a minute, you know, Muddy's doing something and it's, you know, it, it's got a bridge to it. You know, with blues songs, ain't supposed to have a bridge. Well, Muddy did. <laughs> he figured, you know, yeah, let's have a bridge, you know. And, and so, of course, sometimes it's going to be hit and miss. But when you see the response of people, sometimes it works. You know, my little response and call is just, just all it is is turning on its heel, you know, turning it back to front instead of front to back. And I always wonder if it's easier, if you feel left self-conscious or if you're still having to hold down a guitar part while doing that kind of vocal improv. I know when I try to record something like that, like I need to just fully concentrate and I'm like leaping around and shaking my hands in the air, you know, cause, cause that's what I have to do to kind of feel in the moment. But I don't know. There's something you feel if you're by yourself, if you're isolated like that, if you're not having to do something with your hands, you can actually feel more self-conscious about it. Is it easier to play while singing while, while doing that kind of improv or do it by itself? I always think it's personally easier and much more in the moment and much more believable. And if it's in real time, just something about it. And we you know, go back to being a student of the game. You know, most of the records that we grew up loving, you know, from Tutti Frutti to Little Richard, I mean, the music just jumps off the vinyl on you. You know, Chuck Berry, uh, Roll Over, Maybelline, you know, I mean, just the backbeat. Oh, Maybelline, bop, 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 bop. It's like a fucking gun going off, you know? If that don't get you singing in the studio, <laughs> I'm sure Chuck felt real good singing to that. I mean, how can you not get going? Here's a good one. The Beatles' first album. The whole thing done in one day. <laughs> Try that on for size nowadays without auto-tunes. <laughs> you know, the whole album in one day. Do it. That's it. Go ahead. If you're playing your live set, yeah. Play your live set. Do it again. And to know that it sounded that good. 
you got to hunt on that record to find a mistake. You really do. You know, and then it's not really a mistake. It's just something that they threw in or threw you did. But you get that really, it just sort of grabs you, that sort of urgency. But you just really got to trust yourself and not get stuck with, oh, there's a mistake. Or, oh, I came in too early. Nobody knows but you. I mean, in some of those things, most 90% of the old mistakes in those old records are somebody coming in too early. It's just great. I mean, just a case in point. You really got me now. Everybody's heard that a zillion times. And you hear, after Dave Davies' solo, where Ray Davies jumps in a bar too early. He says, well, and he catches himself and comes back in. Yeah, you know, it's so fucking cool. <laughs> it's human. I know it's a mistake. You know it's a mistake. But when you think about it, another band copying it can't do it. Van Halen couldn't do that. It would look too obvious. You know what I mean? I mean, it just made that record so freaking cool. The original, you really got me. Ray Davies made a mistake coming in a bar early to sing, and he stops himself, and he waits the other bar. And, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, great. This is the real shit. To me, that's what art's about. You know, it's not about perfection. It really is about emotion and going from one soul to another soul. There is no right or wrong a lot of times. I've been thinking of performance more recently, probably due to something one of my guests said about as casting a spell. Like there are certain mistakes you can make that would disrupt the spell that would be like, make you too conscious that, Oh, there's something artificial going on here, but there's other mistakes that if they're sort of in the spirit of the spell, like (laughs) it depends what the nature of the spell is like that, that are totally fine. You know, and if you've got an atmosphere, like you really got me, if you've got a really rollicking sort of tone in the first place, then like there's no such thing as a mistake, right? In a punk rock song, the singer can just fall to the ground and writhe and like that's eh, sure, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that actually serves as like a good transition to the third song, The Gift, the title track from The Gift 1988 because this is one of those songs, you know, it's also got the jazz chords that Keep the Faith has but it, again, it kind of has that Baroque sound I was referring to that it just, it sounds very perfect is what I'm saying. And whether that's because it's just very well produced or just the construction that you put together, like this is not one that if you played a wrong, uh, it would be obvious in this one. If you played a horrifically wrong chord, do you want to say a little about where you're at with this song and what you were going for stylistically before we hear it? That song was, that's like 30 something years ago. But I had been still playing in and out of church a little bit, doing programs. You know, I'd go in with different gospel groups and, and help them out, you know, with guitar stuff and, and recording and different things. It's one of those autobiographical songs. So I had to get serious about that song because, you know, I know my mother was going to hear it. She was alive then. I knew my grandmother was going to hear it. She was alive then. Uh, my dad couldn't hear it because he had been dead for 25 years. So it was one of those things where, you know, you just dig down and, and think, you know, what I have to be grateful for was the gift that was bestowed upon me and was all those little things in there. But the music was, I didn't want it to be a form-wise, a blues song. I wanted it to be a compilation of my gospel roots. Of course, I, you know, I studied music in school, classical movement. I wanted some movement so that the voice wouldn't be just, I can't quit you, baby. It's been a gift, a gift, and it couldn't be like that, you know, although I love that. It had to be what it had to be. I wanted some movement. It really was, I tell you, you know, High Tone had had some success with Cold as the Night. At the time, I'll never forget that Bruce Bromberg, 
my co-producer turned to me and he says, Joe, I just got to tell you this. I know that this song means a lot to you, but look on the charts, the blues charts. And I did. There wasn't one album that had a slow song as the title track. <laughs> and he turned to me and he said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but it sounds like you mean it. I'll never forget that. And so there, believe me, it was a real long discussion about making that the title track of the album. It was like up to the minute they pressed the record. Uh, I just remember Bromberg saying, you know, Joe, you know, it, when I listen to the song, he says, it sounds like you mean it. He says, that's about the best compliment I can give you. He says, because this ain't in my wheelhouse. Although they've been right doing stuff with Robert, and Robert was doing stuff that was not your 12-bar blues. And so I give it to Bruce Bromberg of High Tone Records. You know, he had enough vision to let me be me. I believe if I'd have been signed to any other blues labels, they would have wanted me to be a one, four, five blues guy. You know, give me some bar boogie stuff. Well, I can do that. I love doing that. Well, give me um, Dust My Broom. I can do that. But I can't do it any better than Elmore James or Robert Johnson. So why would I want to try to make a living doing Dust My Broom? It doesn't make it to me. That's that thing. Anybody that I talk to that I respect, Willie Dixon, Scotty Moore, B.B. King, uh, you name it. Hey, Joe, be yourself, man. You know, don't try to be me. Buddy guy, Joe, be you. Willie Dixon, Joe, I figured your music out. You're all over the place, but it works for you because it's not a fake. It's not a marketing tool. That's your experiences, Joe. Use them all. And that's what I do. And I feel comfortable in my musical skin. I mean, I really do. I feel comfortable that I can play on a stage with Ronnie Wood. And then I can go from playing with Ronnie Wood to playing with Bobby Rush. And I can go from playing with Bobby Rush to playing with Keb Moe. I can go from Keb Moe to playing with Waddy Wachtel. I can leave Waddy and go play with Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. I feel good about that because it's all music to me. The only tag is music. If you want to get into categorizing, to me what categories do a lot of times, it can be exclusive. It doesn't include people. It excludes people, in my estimation. And to me, that's one of the reasons for a lot of categories, is to exclude people from, oh my God, he crossed over. There's no such thing as crossing over in music. It's no such thing. It's such thing as crossing over in marketing, not in music. <laughs> the Beatles didn't cross over into Chuck Berry's Rollover Beethoven. They marketed it. They were always playing that kind of music, but they were always doing their own music too. They marketed it. Until the day John Lennon died, he was still doing, you know, hey, Junior, behave you, because he really felt that was part of him. Yeah, that was as much a part of him as imagined. You know, I did two shows with Paul McCartney here in the last several years. I mean, he still does the rockers. And you could tell... That's what got everybody inspired, you know? And you, you want to keep that inspiration.
I just ask you, so it seemed like on the previous two, was that basically Tom's 
band, Tom Studio. It sounded like those were more or less studio creations that you then may or may not have brought the song in, but that exact arrangement came out of that group in the studio. Was that the case with The Gift, or were Henry Oden, Kelvin Dixon, Jimmy Stewart maybe? I'd been playing with my band with The Gift. I mean, Kelvin had been playing with me, uh, Henry playing with me, uh, Jimmy Stewart was playing with me a little bit, He was, but really he was the band, band director for a lady named Tina Marie. So Jimmy couldn't be with us all the time, so we had Kevin Zuffy, who were the musicians on the Coldest the Night record. And we toured quite a bit, but that record ended up turning out that way. With Hambridge, Henry was there when we were writing some of the songs, but for some reason, I think he might have had another commitment or something. I don't remember. So we used Tommy McDonald. And so that was basically the crux of Hambridge's studio group. That was the one that I liked, the one that he had, because I played with Reese before at Antone's years ago, and I was not really aware of, I was aware of Tommy McDonald. I wasn't aware of Rob, but Rob was a secret weapon because he's just so inventive, and we could feed off each other and come up with riffs and stuff like that. So we'd go in and rehearse a little bit, and I'd say, well, this is the way you know, I've got it, and, and, and Tom would, you know, it's great, you got a, you got a drummer who's also part of the songwriter, who's also the singer. So we all wore a lot of hats. But that particular band, that Hellfire band that Tom has and Horace, they're just a great bunch of musicians. Rob doesn't even leave to go anywhere too much. You know, he's just so in demand. I think he goes out once in a while with Bob Seger, and Bob Seger's got to send a private plane for him. Because when Rob leaves, He's so much in demand on just a country, not this, but sort of new country, that it better be something he likes to do. These are good boys. They're just so freaking versatile. They remind me of the guys that I, I recorded with uh, in Muscle Shoals, uh, Jimmy Johnson and Roger Hood and, and Roger Hawkins and David Hood and them and, and Clayton Ivey and everybody. I mean, they just, you don't have to get into the weeds about things with them. You one pass, man, and it's like, okay, we got this. Yeah, I was going to say Muscle Shoals because they're sort of notorious for that. It's not like they were touring around with the people and let the songs marinate that way, but they had such a just an internal chemistry that you could just bring something into them and it would just, a lot of the times there'd be instant magic. Having a kind of a house studio band like that, it's a powerful tool. But for the gift, what we're hearing, had this gotten to marinate a couple of, you know, even a year before you recorded it or was it more, I've got a song? Now we bring it in, and apart from a few rehearsals, this is it. We were playing that song on stage, but it was the type of song where I needed to record it. So it was a thing where, okay, when it's time to record, this is the first thing we're going to record, because this is the title track. So I'm, I'm fighting that regard action for, I don't know, four months. <laughs> you know, the slow, And everybody's like, oh, is he really going to do that? Is it really going to be a slow song? Is it really going to be? And, you know, it, it worked out because a lot of people seemed to get the idea of the song and where it was coming from. And also, I always like to say that if you put my record on and you put on 40 other blues records of the same year, you'll know that mine's just a little bit different. And you'll know me from a minute into the song. And I guarantee you, if you put on a blues album in 1986 and put it next to The Gift, The Gift song, put it next to any other blues song, it'll be so different, yet not so different. <laughs> but it'll be so different that you say, oh man, I don't know, what, what has he been doing? <laughs> you know? 
the solo in this in particular is very out of character for blues because it's just about all chordal. It sounds very written. Like, is that solo pretty much exactly the same every time? Yep, I wrote it out that way. I wrote it as if I was playing a piano. And then when it gets to, I don't know, let's see, the solo has a, uh, the A section. Like the little bit of a third movement where it goes to the single string stuff. I just took it to a 4-1 blues thing. 4 minor to the 1 minor blues thing. And then when it goes to the, I don't know, the flattest 7, major 7, the, the walker, da, 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 da. I sort of just did just enough to not get into a lot of wanking off. Just enough, to sort of a little chordal solo. that it sort of held together leading back into the final verse, you know, into the coda, down, 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 the diminished chord, then leading into the outro. It worked. It's one of those songs I had to sit down and really try it this way, try it that way, try it that way, try it this way, throw this out, keep this, keep that, keep this, this leads here, that chord leads there. I got it. It was one of those songs you put some thought into it. Well, and just the fact that you have to, if you're doing a chordal solo, you have to use the tremolo bar to get those nice shaky pieces. Whereas if you're doing single note, then, well, you know, you can just, your finger can twitch on your, on your left hand. Yeah, I had to think it out. I was pretty happy with that song. You know, I might start redoing doing that song again one of these days on stage because people ask for it and I like it. In terms of the vocal style, like I noticed in particular on the last verse, you know, he died unnecessarily. Sarah, like this, this strange, you know, on paper, it's it's a very strange articulation, but it it works so well in context, I guess, because you're doing the melody. But like, this is another one since it's slow enough that you let yourself, you know, move around a lot with the notes. Is that the kind of thing that, like, okay, if I'm playing this live for a year, that's really going to evolve over time as you kind of feel out what's most natural to do in those situations, to where to put the exact syllables. Well, song like that. It had to be the laying of the syllables where for like that and for the bridges and stuff. In a slow song, you sort of have to drag your words out. And you really learned you want to, at the end of a phrase, sort of have it drag a little bit. You don't want to chop it, you know, like unnecessarily instead of unnecessarily. It's a big difference. And if you listen to any good singers, especially opera, you always sort of, the end of one verse would sort of leave you some room to vocalize going into another verse. You can chop it, but if you do, it doesn't have the same effect. And you could take, especially any ballad, I don't care what it is. It's even, if you wear red tonight, you could have said, if you wear red tonight, this is what I said tonight. It doesn't sound the same. Or, you know, you really got a hold on me. He could have said, you really got a hold on me. He does. He chops it 
when the backgrounds are answering, you notice that, know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Smokey chops it. But when you get to the vocal, it's sort of like legato is what I want to say. Because one note usually leads to another. And like Mozart was a genius of that. One note leading to another. Just take one thread of one note. And by the time you go through all the movement with that, at the end of the song, go back to that one thread. If you just study people that write good, that sing good, you'll see that nine out of ten, where a verse will leave off, another verse will sort of pick up. Unless it's somebody like, who really don't sing, who like talk sing, like Bob Dylan, you know, then it's another thing. But then if you listen to Bob Dylan's record, uh, John Wesley Hardinger, Nashville Skyline, where he, he was really singing, it's just amazing. You know, I mean, how many people were in that body? <laughs> it's literally like another person came out of Bob Dylan's vocal cords. You know, you had, you know, once upon a time, and then you had, lay, 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 lay. You, know, you, you had him singing from the, his aperture as opposed to his nose. And when you sing out of your aperture, it gives you more wind. When you sing out of your nose, you know, it's only so much you can do. There's no wind coming out. So it gives you sort of a thin sound. And it's, it's a good sound to have. You can use that nasally sound. But you can use a palette of different ways of singing, just like can use, you can use a pedal board. And experts of that are people like Stevie Wonder. He, he can sing a, a rough song, you know. Very superstitious. And he can sing a beautiful ballad, you know. Just any number of the beautiful ballads he sings. Or you get a John Lennon who has 90 different voices. But you got the baby voice. Yourself on them. Then you got the walrus voice. Then you got the please, please me voice. Then you, <laughs> you know what I mean? You got a million different voices in this one guy. And he knew what to do with them all. You can't have the beginning of, of Lucy in the Sky with Diamond's voice fitting the same as the please, please me voice. The please, please me voice is basically, you know, last night I said these words, you know. In other words, you know, please, please me. Give me some like I give you some, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. And then you get the girl voice. Ah, the sec I mean, the cat was a genius. And so it's Stevie Wonder to be able to do all those things with your voice and trust yourself to know that 90% of these tough guys out there are going to look at me sort of funny if I say, Pitching yourself on a boat on a river. You sound like a little kid. Yeah, but once you get into it, isn't a kid a person that pictures themselves? Grown-ups, they lose their dreams. They don't picture themselves anymore. Sometimes they don't. So you got all that going on. If you just study people like that, like I do, the first thing that captures you, really, is the voice and the spoken word. And you can do so many things with the timbre of your voice, with the roughness, with the softness. You know, with the declamation, with the, with the pity, with the it's just you know, it's a million things you can do. Sure, and so just to compare the gift with what we started with, don't play games. So that's don't play games. Another slow song, but that's one where you could have said, you know, if you were playing it in the style in that more straightforward blues style of don't play games, he died unnecessarily. But like in other words, you can cut the word short if something like you said, you know, if the backing vocals are answering you or you're going to answer yourself with a little guitar noodle but this song this is why i was saying this is more baroque that it's got this no there's no room for little guitar weedlies you know in between words because you're holding down this nice major seventh arpeggio chord here ding 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 you know throughout the whole th like that that is the melody actually it sounds like i saw when you did this there's a live clip of this stuff from 1991 where there's only one guitar i think on this recording 
There are two, but you're mostly doubling yourself. Is that right? Yeah. If you even remember at this point, it's a long damn time ago. But That session I remember, because on all high-tone records, they wanted you to double yourself. And a lot of them, they wanted to use the old Beatles trick of singing lead with yourself to get that ping-pong effect, you know. But that's, <laughs> boy, that ain't an easy one. Yeah, well, not if you're doing Ray Charles-ish, you know, if you're doing this florid uh, <laughs> improvisational singing. Like, do now do that twice. <laughs> like, just add some delay. Come on. I'll tell you something funny, is that when I came back to secular music from playing gospel, and, you know, a friend of mine says, hey, man, I want you to meet a couple of guys, man. And I think the first one, he says, you know, this guy, he sort of sounds like you, or you sound like him, it's like 85, and... And I was just getting ready to go on a tour with them with Mississippi Does a Blues Band. I says, well, come down to the San Francisco Blues Festival. I was backing a lady named Katie Webster then. He says, why don't you meet this guy, Robert Gray? And I listened to Robert. I says, well, you know, he sort of does something like he comes out of church. So we became friends. We've been friends ever since. And then he says, well, come down here. I want you to meet this other guy. So I go down to Santa Cruz Civic Auditorium. And my friend says, hey, man, I want you to meet Stevie Ray Vaughan. Blah, blah, blah. So I'm sitting there, and we're backstage. In fact, I'm looking at the picture of me and Stevie backstage now. You know, we talk, and we're talking guitars, and he says, well, what you doing, man? And I says, well, you know, I, in fact, I just finished my, my record, Cold as the Night. He says, well, where is it? I says, well, I got a copy of the tape. He says, well, let's sit and listen to it. So we sit and listen, and the first thing Stevie said was, talk about guitar and vocals. He says, man, that Cold as the Night sounds good. Why aren't you playing more guitar in there? I said, Stevie, I took the solo. And I played the next song. Why aren't you playing more guitar? I said, well, Stevie, by the end of the song, the album, Stevie says, where's your producer? Tell him to turn the guitar up, more solos. And I said, Stevie, I said, no disrespect, but to me, less guitar is more. And he said, I have to sing these melodies and sing and get the singing across, get the punchline of the songs across. And when I said the word singing, Stevie just turned to me and he says, you know, Joe, I hate the way I sound singing. And I just said, you know what, Stevie? How much do you practice guitar a day? Seven, eight hours a year? How much do you sing in a day? Seven, eight minutes? I said, flip it. <laughs> and we got to be friends, and I called him. And I was so proud that right before he died, he made that record, Brothers Vaughn, and he is singing so soulfully. I could hear the confidence in his voice. And what I loved about Stevie Ray Vaughan, he didn't try to sound affected. You know, he didn't try to sound like he was from Mississippi in 1930. You know, he sounded like he sounded. And it worked. I respected him a lot, and I think it was a great loss when we lost Stevie Ray. Well, let's bring ourselves to close out here up to the present. This is very fitting, given what we were just talking about. So the Soldier for Jesus you've mentioned before, and I want to have us play uh, to end here, live from Viva Las Vegas, 2019 release. So this is one that is much less restrained on the guitar, that there's you know a kind of concise, very singable chorus, and then you just fill in. We haven't heard slide guitar, I think, otherwise on this episode, that you're sliding all over the place. It's a super fun song that's very open to broadening it out and playing extra notes and being spontaneous. And that's the song. That's where me and the Jordanaires originally hooked up. On the record there, the original guys on singing on there with me. The, the thing I, I liked about doing that song was I, I really got to juxtapose the slide guitar on top of the gospel lyrics. Because if you listen on the record, the slide guitar is a little bit wild. But when I was playing in gospel church, there was a lot of sacred steel. You know, it just didn't start here, no disrespect, with Robert Randolph. It's been guys playing 
steel guitar and country, singing country gospel in church also. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, that cross-pollination we were talking about earlier. So I figured, you know what? When I knew Fred McDowell, him and his wife would sing gospel songs and he'd put slide on top of it. You got to move and stuff like that. Then you listen to Sunhouse doing John the Revelator acapella and different things like that. And there was always this connection with blues and slide guitar and gospel music. You just don't hear a lot of it. So I thought, you know what, boy, if, if I could get this thing with the Jordanair singing background and us doing the guy with the slide guitar on top of it and with a sort of a more of a funkier beat, not just your regular 4-4 backbeat, but a real more of a loping feeling, you know, where you could really sort of sort of get into it. We had a great time, <laughs> a great time with the Jordanaires. I mean, just the stories that they told were just incredible. Yeah, so that was originally on the New Direction 2004 album. I will link folks to the version to that. But this is the new live version. And I'm very happy to hear that your voice is still, you know, that you're still able to really belt, you know, unlike Bob Dylan that you were talking about, who used to be able to say, and now everything is constructed to uh, a three-note range at the bottom of the... <laughs> so. Well, I think you got to care, you know. <laughs> you you got to sort of care, you know, Um I did a, several versions of that song, Soldier for Jesus. I did Soldiers for Jesus also on the Hellfire album. That's the one with the Jordanaires. I think I did it on New Direction, where I was me singing the backgrounds. If I did it on that record, it really fleshed out with the Jordanaires because it's just like you're wrapped in this beautiful vocal velvet glove, you know? <laughs> and you, you just think, you know, you sort of pinch yourself and sing. Okay, 19 number one hits with Elvis Presley before Elvis stole them. 19 number one hits with Ricky Nelson before Elvis stole them. They had 91 number one hits with Elvis. All the touring with all those different gospel groups, with Patsy Cline, with you name it, with, with Rosetta Thorpe. I mean, the Jordanaires are literally, literally one of the fabrics of American music. I mean, it's just amazing. Crossing the color line, the, the country line, the rock and roll line, the gospel line. I mean, you name it. It's just in freak incredible. And, you know, I think someday, some way, somebody's going to tell that story. Ken Burns did talk to Ray Walker in the, in his country special that was on here this past week, which was just was really seminal, just a great special. I love what Ken Burns does, but he really nailed it, you know, showing that coat of many colors <laughs> in country music that you don't necessarily hear on the radio. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Joe. I, it's been an honor. I love hearing your stories. Thanks for being patient, and I, I really appreciate it. And anytime, just give me a call.
Wow, thank you so, so much to Joe. What a wonderful storyteller, a great storehouse of musical knowledge, of musical history. So it's great to get a glimpse, in this case, not only at what Joe actually produces, but at the environment in which he produces it, which, if you've been listening much to this podcast, you know, I don't cover much blues or gospel or boogie-woogie, really. So I feel like I'm just scratching the surface and getting to know the difference between all the kinds of blues that he's played over the years, all the ingredients that make up the soup. So this was just a really great experience, and Joe was just really gracious with his time and a super nice guy. So please check out his website, joelewiswalker.com. If you're not subscribed to this podcast, please do so at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Look up Nakedly Examined Music on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I could really use some more ratings or reviews on those sites if you want to help out, let other people know about what's going on here. I have gone back into the mode of recording a lot of these. I've been getting some really good opportunities. I'm still only going to be releasing them every two weeks. The next one I was very excited about, it's a guy I've been listening to since college at least, Marty Wilson Piper. He was one of the guitarists for The Church. has a long solo history. I've also now recently interviewed two country artists, Radney Foster and Michaela Ann, and also a guy named Bid from a British group called The Monochrome Set that I had not heard of, but they have been an institution since a little before 1980. So check that out. I hope you've also been listening to my other non-philosophy podcast, Pretty Much Pop, as we've had some good music commentary episodes on that, including one coming out in less than two weeks with my former guest from this podcast, Ken Stringfellow. Finally, I must, as always, remind you about patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, where you can get the ad-free feed for this podcast. And know that you are doing your small part to ensure its continued survival. Hope you all have a good Thanksgiving or whatever you celebrate in your part of the world. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Linton Meyer signing off. Mm-hmm.